Hello and welcome to Work Breast Slay, the podcast for the Image Business Club, where we chat to Ireland's most interesting business leaders in the hope that we can learn from and through their experiences. My name is Melanie Morris, I'm your host and I'm contributing editor at Image Media. Today's podcast is an incredibly insightful one as my guest is someone whose career has spanned 30 years and taken in all three sides of a triangle that is entrepreneurship, banking and academia, all of which was inspired and spurred on from her initial work as a fourth generation member in a family business. The fact that she has now gone on to mentor, advise and steer the family businesses of others speaks directly about her wealth of knowledge and experience. Anne Duggan is a remarkable woman and a brilliant advocate for all of those keen to do well, do better and do the right thing. She hails from Pittsburgh, Virginia in the USA, but she's equally comfortable and knowledgeable talking about business in Ireland. As in addition to all of her many, many accolades, Anne works closely with Key Capital, consulting with their clients and speaking at their various conferences on entrepreneurship and all aspects of family wealth. Our conversation covers everything from how to have those difficult boardroom conversations um, to the shape and form of philanthropy in business. We also get to hear about Anne's remarkable life and her pioneering attitude to business and business methods. Before we begin, it would be so appreciated if you'd hit subscribe on this podcast, rate us, and if you have a moment, leave a review. But for now, let's get chatting with Anne Duggan. So Anne, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, first question to address the elephant in the room. With a name like Anne Duggan and an American accent, is there an Irish link? Is there a tenu- Could you play rugby for us or is there a tenuous Irish link? Uh, no, there's actually a strong Irish link. Uh, on my father's side, I say on my side, I'm 75% Irish and then 25%, you know, UK slash Scotland, depending upon what generation we're looking at. And then on my husband's side, He's 50% um, Irish. His father was 100% and his mother was um, Czech. Oh, my goodness me. So there's a strong European thread going through. Absolutely. And a good Celtic one. And of course, you come to Ireland quite a lot, don't you? Yes, I do. I've been uh, working there now for at least five years. There was always the COVID hiccup in the middle, but generally five, six years. Oh, brilliant. Well, we'll talk a little bit about more about that in, in due course. But maybe just uh, for context and to, to get us off the ground, Anne, could you tell us a little bit about your background? And I suppose where family businesses come into it, but about your own experiences and how you started in work. You know, really early on, when I think about that question, I think about at birth, because being born into a family who own a business, uh, you know, the, the nuances and the you know, dynamics are always present, even though, it, you know, you could say at a young age of three, four, five, you didn't know it, but you sort of knew it because you would go to the, you know, location of the business and the plant and people would be so nice and they would give me Coca-Colas, which my mother and father never let me have, but my grandparents did. And so, you know, and the employees, so it was, you know, really at birth. And I think that I've always had this environment of, you know, entrepreneurship and, came in our family, not everyone joined the family business for a lot of reasons, but the family business provided opportunities to do other things. So entrepreneurship was always part of our family business, along with the idea of capturing innovation and trying to figure out what's next. And what was the family business? So our our family business, um, so I'm fourth generation, we started in growing trees, cutting trees, planing trees and distributing lumber. And that went on for a couple of generations. And then really in the third generation, we and we, we added building products, building products for the contractor. Uh, we were not, and still are not a very retail oriented um, business that it really is to the, the contractor. So building supplies, plumbing, windows, doors, hardware, you know, those kinds of things that would go along with that. In, in the third generation, we also um, stopped to plane the lumber. We became part of a lumber uh, distribution area. So that in the second generation, the tree groves were sold, but the third generation, 
we um, became uh, out of the cleaning lumber business and we became in, as pure distributors as we are today. So we oh are, you know, inventory, you know, we hold a lot of inventory, um, but we distribute the lumber. So how many um, Duggins or maybe not Duggins, what was the name? Lang. On, the, how many- on my mother's side is Lang. Ah, right. So how many Langs were in the business at one stage? And, and what was your role in the business initially? So at one stage, there were six uh, Langs in the business uh, along the way. And my role, so it, it's actually a really interesting story. So this this business is on the southeast coast of Georgia, very southern, you know, very um, patriarchal, you know, part of society, especially back then. My grandfather had two girls and two boys. So the third generation was was set that way. And he um, made a role that the girls should not join the family business, that, they, that, that it was a boy's business. So his sons would run the business, they would own the business, but the girls would receive real estate. So not only back then the real estate that the business sat on, but also through time being on the coast of Georgia, lots of opportunities to buy land, beautiful land along the ocean. And that's what he did for the girls. One of his mantras was to, um, it's time to go off to college and that's a great place to find a good husband. And so um, my mother and her sister went off to college and found careers and became very successful in their own businesses or their own careers, I should say, in my aunt and her own business. Um, But it it was a different kind of time. And so that's, that continued until, well, I would say late third generation, my aunt joined the business. Her husband at the time, my uncle was the CEO of the business and she joined uh, for a lot of reasons and became the first woman family member in the business. Uh, during the years in my role, I became as, I would say more in governance, you know, uh, as a, helping the board, assisting board decisions and governance of a multi-generational family and business. Oh my goodness. And tell me, um, as the first woman in the business, was there anything your aunt brought into the business that was a little bit different or that opened people's eyes? Absolutely. My my aunt, uh, Marcel Lang, uh, was, a, was a wonderful person. Her, she came from a family business herself uh, in, in the grocery business. So she understood margins and pricing and uh, can I say accounts receivable and payable better than anybody. And so at one point she had three boys and she was a very close aunt to me. And she said to me, you know, I said to your uncle, uh, our paychecks are not the same. Our take home pay at his time, he was working there. You know, that some some weeks it was really good and some weeks not so good. And, and cash flow seemed to flow in and out, ups and downs, you know, hills and valleys. So she said, I'm coming in to find out what's going there because we need to have a more consistent income flow into our household. And he goes, oh, my uncle, uh, Hubert said, oh, no, you can't do that. My father's going to have a fit. You know, no girls in the business, et cetera, et cetera. And so long story short, she said, I'm coming in. And she came in and she spent the next, I'll say, 40 years of her life there, cleaned up the books, found out that, you know, my uh, my uncle and my grandfather and others, um, they like to, uh, you know, be with their hunting and fishing buddies. And, you know, sometimes you need a credit, no problem, we'll, we'll give it to you. And so all of a sudden, you know, there was, you know, cash flow shortages and then, you know, plethora. So she said, from now on, anybody wants credit, they've got to come see me. We'll talk about it. And I, I give her a lot of credit of really professionalizing the accounting and finance functions of the business. Actually, that opens up so many questions for me because, I mean, firstly, what years were, were these in, Anne? So that was that would have been, I'm going to say the late, well, I'll say mid-60s. So it's quite pioneering. Um, but it opens up the question of a lot of the time you hear about women who, whether it is officially or unofficially, they, a lot of women in a family business or even just in a family dynamic, they take over the running of the books. Is this something that you see? I do see that. And oftentimes, you know, in the, especially in, in the past years, it was a safe place for a woman to enter the family business. You know, she wasn't out there working in the yard or out there doing sales on the road, you know, those kinds of things. But a woman who wanted to enter a family business oftentimes was pigeonholed into that arena 
um, which worked out well at times, but other times, you know, you had women that were very hungry and dynamic to do other kinds of things. And so they had to break sort of the glass ceiling in their own business, family business, which would have been dad or grandpa most of the time until, you know, not so long ago. Now women are starting, have been starting their own business or at least been, you know, anointed as successor in their family business. And, and that glass ceiling has really come apart because now many families are, are like best in class. Who's best for the right position? Uh, I'll say for years, it was the oldest son was going to be the one to take over. Even if that oldest son was either A, not ready, not willing, didn't have the personality types of a leader, they were the oldest son. And in some cultures around the world, that's still the case. But in many places where there's been research and education, it's been best in class. Who in our family should be the one to take on these leadership positions so that our family business continues to survive and grow? And then of course now, um, even I'll say in the last 10 years, maybe 15 years, I've had you know women, uh, generation one entrepreneurs that I've worked with that have said, okay, now my kids wanna come into the business. You know, How do I make that work? Or my husband is, interested or my significant other is interested in coming into the my business I started how do I make this work so mm -hmm. dynamics always change well the thing that also interests me about your aunt is obviously if she is the one who is giving the approval as to the release of funds that must have made for some strong conversations and some difficult confrontations and conversations is that something women are good at I think that they can be good. I think that they can be good at it as men can as well. I think the whole idea is setting the tone, you know, how, what, what, you know, as we move into these difficult conversations, whether it's about, you know, Joe or Mary need to get credit for their account, et cetera, et cetera. It's what is the tone that we enter this, you know, what is our goal? And I think that's really the underpinning of moving to a better place together. And I'm not going to say you always arrive at consensus, you know, but at least you, you, you know, get to a place that both are much more in agreement than in conflict. Yeah. Have you any tips for how to have difficult conversations, whether it be as a family business or just business colleagues in general? Yes, absolutely. Just, you know, playing upon what I've said is how you enter that meeting. So I like to say, set an agenda in place. If it's a conflict meeting, then that's going to be the agenda, you know, one topic, you know, sometimes not only family business, but other leaders, they bring in, okay, well, we need to talk about X, Y, and Z and this conflict. But I think a conflict, um, you know, discussion needs focus. So that should be the agenda item in most cases. That's number one. Number two is putting together some background information written, the, even if it's just scribbled on a piece of paper to say, here's, here's from my opinion or my perspective where this conflict came from. Here's some data points or background that I've gotten from that. And, you know, here's uh, where but I'd like to really arrive at discussion of options and then ultimately arriving at a solution that we can both agree on. So those, those are all like the underpinnings of starting that meeting. But I think the other part of it is best time of day. In my opinion, it's in the morning. Um, it's a quiet time. Telephones are off. Technology's off. Let's, again, really focus so that we're looking at each other across the table and we're really coming to the right conclusion. And if you have uh, some time, the other side of that conflict should have the opportunity to write down their thoughts as well and send them for pre-reading. So everybody understands, you know, sort of like the background thinking as mm -hmm. they enter the meeting. Well, it's back down to that great line about going hard on the problem and not the person. Isn't that it? That's exactly right. Don't make mm -hmm. it personal. Uh, don't bring up the past. This is not, you know, in terms of like when, you know, you and I had this fight, you know, or conflict two years ago, this is what happened. Deal with today and really look at what are those solutions and entering it fresh, you know, state of mind, no, no distractions and really focus on the goal of, you know, we want to end this conflict and come out of it in a better place. You know, someone uh, told me not too long ago said, you know, when in, who their work, their total work is working with families in conflict and their families who own things, you know, whether it's wealth or assets or other businesses together and said, you know, the time to repair the roof on your shed is not when it starts raining, have the roof repaired, ready to go. So when the rain comes, the shed is fine and dry. And I think that's 
part of that family education or you know communication process is what do we do when we have a conflict yeah no no, no. that's that do you know it's very very wise advice and it is the kind of thing that especially at this time of a year it's t- it's a good time to get your roof in order isn't it not before christmas when everything's going to be getting really busy to, absolutely plus you know you have the holidays have emotional time around them. You know, uh, we all remember that emotion of our past, whether it's Easter or Christmas or, you know, some other big holiday that um, provides a time for emotions to dwell up. They can be impact, you know, in a negative way what's happening. So that's, yeah. those are never good times. Yeah. And how do you advise people to stop talking about something then? Because I'm sure, especially if it's something where the principals, whether they're all very, very well connected and socialize a lot of time outside of the workplace or that they're family and they're going home to an environment where they're going to keep seeing each other. How do you keep it in the boardroom? So that's a good, great question. So I think there's two things. And one is that we're that the goal of this meeting, even if we don't come to absolute conclusion, we're going to have at least one to three options on the table of moving forward, no more than three. Um, and, and then everybody can go back, think about it, and then schedule the next meeting. It might be in a week later, maybe it's three days later, but a short time frame later. So now everybody's had time to digest and think about those three options. We're coming back together to decide on what is the option we want to go forward with. And then I also think about you know, at that particular point in time that um, it's written, you know, that everybody's agreed to it. There's a follow-up email with a date on it, who was present in the meeting, you know, it could be a, you know, document, but I found that especially when you have the senior generation together, you know, trying to make decisions, oftentimes people forget. And so that's where part of that meeting is, here's what I heard you say, or did you hear what I, I said and repeating back? Because oftentimes, you know, Within 24 hours, people forget what was just discussed. And so having the ability to follow up. So that's number one. Number two is after that, I use the, you know, the election, or I should say the appointment of a pope as an example. When a white spoke goes up in, in, you know, in the Vatican, you don't hear anybody ever come out of that and say, you know, he was really my second choice or my fifth choice, or, you know, I didn't really like him for those reasons. That's when I say the white smoke comes up and everybody's agreement this is what we decided March 4. Don't keep revisiting it and you know, keep it moving forward. This is what we decided. So we're not gonna live in the past. We've made a decision. We've mitigated our conflict in a, you know, a good way. And now everybody's singing the same tune. But I think the other part of that is going home. So there's two parts of it is your core household. So now you've gone home to your wife or husband or your adult children, or even your young children. They're all listening. So my counsel to them always is, okay, if you want to explain to them in a high level, uh, the conflict and the resolution, that's fine. But any negative thing that you would say, you have to have at least two positives in the conversation. Because, you know, as, as human nature, we tell our spouse oftentimes, or our adult children, the negative versus the positive. And so that has to be there. Otherwise, it becomes, you know, your point of view and uh, then people start to fall apart in their relationships because you were mean to my mother or my father or whatever, not knowing the whole story. But actually, I love that tip. And it's one that I haven't heard before. And I think what's nice about it is that um, thoughts live and roost in our brains. So if we fill our heads with the negative, there's no space for the positive to grow. So if you plant a few positive seeds along the way, it does balance out the equation a bit, doesn't it? It absolutely does. In many families... Uh, that on large businesses, you'll find, you know, where, whether it's in the written, you know, documentation or, or, or newspaper articles or whatever, you know, the, the next generation has no interest in joining the business. And I found that in Ireland a number of times. And I've said, how did you encourage them to join or think about the family business? You know, mandatory duty and obligation, especially for the current generation is out. So it has to be, you know, that's not what they that doesn't resonate with them. So how did you provide that into a positive, you know, environment, especially at a young age when their brain, you know, kicks in and they're starting, they're starting to watch these things. So I think that whole positive experience early on, instead of that darn business or those darn employees or those darn government, you know, taxes, whatever it is, those things are picked up and all of a sudden they're, they're coming of age going, why would I ever 
want to even consider that business. So it's like boxing, punch, punch, jab. Positive, positive, yeah. neg. <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's a great analogy. <laughs> um, and let's go back to you because a lot of your learning has been outside of the family business. So what happened along your career path? It, um, so, I, you know, I have to say, going back to my family, you know, innovation, entrepreneurship was always part of it. Looking at things, doing things differently, um, looking at opportunities. I mean, I'm a voracious reader of business journals and pod, you know, podcasts, uh, webinars, you know, whatever it is, YouTube, just to get ideas. And now it's really interesting. And so I, I always through my time looked at how do I make that real? Or how can I take, you know, some of the, um, you know, assets or wealth that the family has provided to say, I need seed money, you know, not a, not a uh, gift or not a grant, but I need seed money. So as an early age, that was easier to, to, you know, really have a family that you could reach into and say, I need a little seed money and then make a success of it. So I was always um, looking to work for myself. And I ended up to, uh, you know, do what everybody does. You know, I went into banking to learn finance and accounting. So I wanted to see what the small business sector was doing and have a understanding of the financial part of it, especially in my early years, a woman couldn't even get a car loan without, you know, her dad or her husband signing on the note. And so I learned that, you know, early on that I needed to learn a whole lot more about this arena, unless I'm just going to grow with a little seed money and I don't want to borrow money. Mm. So that was, that was important. And then learning how investors come in and what kind of investors as you're growing your business, because business is rooted on, first of all, is there a market, right? Do you, have you thought of an idea or innovation that the market where you're located really embraces? That's number one. But number two, how are you going to finance it? And so that that became you know a big part of learning going into banking. And then and then like all good business people back then, I got my MBA. So I went back to school uh, full time. I started part time to get my MBA, and I thought, you know what, life. I'm getting too old. I I got to you know get in there and get it done. So I got my MBA, and that's where I met a number of interesting people. Um, that were at that point in time, and I'll say, you know, this is now in the 80s, starting their own business. And in many areas, uh, there was, people didn't understand entrepreneurship. They didn't understand even um, the process of becoming an entrepreneur. Now it's everywhere. But back then it was it was very difficult. And so I, I had a lot of, you know, the hard knocks. I went into retail businesses. Um, I had two daughters who were at that time, uh, you know, I'll say 10 and 13, um, they got jobs in the first business that I had, which was in the pizza business, so that we were um, able to have phone people that could answer the phone and make pizza and cut pizza. So it was our, my own family business and, and grew from there. And I joined with a uh, franchise that became, uh, so it was a young couple who had created a franchise. And so I joined as, I want to say franchisee number three. And um, and then grew to you know well over fifty before they had sold the franchise. So that was you know the beginning part of it. But it's interesting because you know one thing leads to the other. So as I was in the pizza business back then, I learned that boxes, the 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 thing that made home delivery pizza work was the box itself. It was a uniquely back then crafted waffle kind of box. So I went into the packaging business. And I, I went into the hazardous material packaging business because um, a, a plane had gone down in Florida. And the reason it went down is that two, an accelerant and a heat seeker had been put together in the cargo hold. And of course it exploded. So it was an interesting process to learn about hazardous material packaging and packaging itself, all starting with a pizza box. So again, you know, I could go on and on, but it's looking at opportunities, not being afraid to you know, jump in and take a risk and, you know, keeping the long-term plan in mind of who's involved with me and are they bringing the right things to the table. Along those, way, those ways, I learned how to pick good investors and bad investors, you know, good partners, good leaders, you know, sort of your C-suite team, learned a lot about the personality of people. And those were the school of hard knocks. Oh my, well, you've done so many amazing things, but um, tell me as a little break off tip there, uh, when you say you've learned about how to get good investors and bad investors and good C-suite and bad C-suite, can you give us a little few tips to look out for or some learnings? Absolutely. I'll start with investors. And that is, 
be really aware of what they're looking for. You know, really spend the time. It's more than just the, the amount of the funds they're willing to put in, but it's really what are they looking for? Some will say, well, I'm looking for, you know, a 30% return in five years or, you know, seven years. That's not going to work in most businesses, especially young businesses. So it's important that we might think that the investor knows what they're looking for, but oftentimes they haven't been business leaders themselves or entrepreneurs. And so they're money people versus, you know, business, you know, operators or leaders. So I think yeah. clarity and communication is number one. And then write it down. Here's what you're looking for. Here's what I'm willing to offer. And then we come to some kind of a consensus that works for both of us. I think that's number one. Because uh, a bad investor can cause a lot of chaos in a business with mm. demands, accountability, uh, short uh, short term timeframes, you know, instead of really being having patient capital and waiting for the long term. So that's, and then the, the culture fit, you know, do you, do you like whoever is the investing pool, um, who's going to be the main person that is your contact? And do you have synergy? Do you have camaraderie? Do you understand them? Do they understand you or your communication styles? similar. You know, those are mm, the personality mm. or behavioral characteristics that are important on the investor side. I would say a lot of that in the, in the C-suite is the same. Um, and, and it really goes to expectations. Oftentimes the, it starts with a money, you know, message, like, you know, what do you want? You know, what, you know, here's what I made in my last position and here's what I want to make in this position. Okay. But in your last position, you know, you had, you could only move so far up. I'm at the top. So I'm building this C-suite of people that are, I'm looking for value add. What is the value add you're going to bring to the business at hand? And, you know, how are you going to, you know, look at this as a long-term view versus here's my compensation at my prior job. I want 10% more, 8% more, and I want to have stock. Well, that's not going to happen all in the same day. You know, we're going to work together and really get to learn each other the opportunity that we're building together and also to learn, you know, the, the value add you're bringing to the table. Many entrepreneurs or, you know, I'll say, you know, young businesses, they start to give away, you know, stock early, either phantom stock, which, you know, has its own challenges, but opportunities, but also, you know, just stock. And then all of a sudden you find out that Anne and Mary just can't work together and, you know, Mary has to go. Well, if you've given Mary stock, that's expensive. And so mm. all of that takes time to build, you know, sort of the, the learning pathway together of what works, what is, doesn't work. You've amassed a huge amount of knowledge over the years. And I mean, obviously, so much of it is learned firsthand. But also you are, tell us a little bit about the Institute for Entrepreneurial Excellence that you founded. So that, that's, a, that's an interesting story because, again, it goes to this entrepreneurial spirit that I have. And, and, and I would say that. So I'm, I'm getting my MBA at the University of Pittsburgh. And during that period of time, you know, I, I would meet people. And one of them was the chancellor at the time, Chancellor Wesley Poswar um, of the university. And um, I like opera. So I, his wife is an opera singer. So I met her as well. And, you know, we just started talking and, you know, getting to know each other more social than a typical student would, would be. Because I, I was also, I should mention at that time, I was a single mom with two little kids. And, you know, I got my MBA in 1985. Um, so I was bringing in 84, I'll say 84 and 85. When I went full time to get my MBA, I had to bring my kids to class because there was no, no way there was no such thing as daycare, you know. In, so where um, were you putting them? Pardon me? Where were you putting them? Uh, in the, the two back girls. Of the classroom with the crayons and books and, you know, things to do. There was no technology back then. So they couldn't, you know, watch their iPhone uh, movie. Um, so it, it, it and actually I had permissions from my professors. I didn't have mm. to do it all the time because I had friends that would, you know, um, step in, you know, when I needed. But it was, you know, I was an unusual student, especially back in the 80s, that that didn't ever happen. And so they became friends. And so as I graduated and I was, you know, moving into the pizza business and, and so forth, um, I came back to meet and they said, you know, we really have this um, business school, you know, I'll, I'll say the Joseph M. Katz Graduate School of Business, which was about, was named for an entrepreneur in the packaging business, by the way, gift wrap and, uh, you know, um, bows and those kinds of things. So 
they said, you know, we have this small part uh, called the Small Business Development Center. It's a federal and state grant to help people write a business plan and start a business. And it's not doing well. Can you come in and take a look at it? So I said, okay, I'll never work for a big bureaucracy like the University of Pittsburgh, but I'll come in and take a look at it. And I, I, one, of the, one of the things I found out is that the services, the people that were offering the services didn't understand business, had never worked in business. It was academic, you know, let me give you five inches of paper and you read this and come back and write a business plan and I'll review it for you. So it wasn't working that way. Uh, business doesn't work that way. So I stepped back and I said, okay, I'll fix this, you know, and I'll help you fix this, you know, while I'm building up my pizza business, but uh, I'm never going to work here full time. So long story short, I spent 28 years there. Um, I, kept, <laughs> <laughs> I, kept, I kept creating new things that became part of the Institute for Entrepreneurial Excellence. So as I was fixing, it, it, you know, as I was really working on this, you know, academic exercise on writing a business plan, starting a business that had federal and state money, we had a, a lot of family businesses coming in for help existing family business, second, third generation. And many of them were suppliers to the steel industry because our area, Western Pennsylvania was very big in steel, but the steel industry was ending. I mean, you know, global competition, price of ingredients, uh, lack of modernization on the technology, it was dying. And so all these suppliers, they were distributors and customers and trucking and, you know, utility. I mean, everything you could think of as suppliers to that big steel, no, um, they were suffering. And, you know, some were had their heads in the sand waiting for the industry to come back. And mm -hmm. others were ready to really think about innovation and what else can we do as a family? You know, we have the music playing, we have the lights on, we have a building. We need to innovate into other industries because the steel industry may not come back so fast and it might not come back as we wanted. So at that point in time, I started to work with them as part of my organization. We probably had grown to about 10 people at the time. And that's when I realized that my experience growing up in a family who owned a business came into play. So as we could work on the, I'll say the hard skills of a business, the soft skills were what was keeping us bad. You know, dad, mom, grandma, grandpa, didn't want to change, may want to change, but didn't want to spend money. I mean, all those, the behavioral skills came in or junior, you know, wasn't ready to do anything else at the business. They had been raised with a level of affluence. Um, they'd like to play golf and go sailing or, you know, be at the country club, but the business needed every, all hands on deck working hard. So that's when I really started to learn, you know, about the, the, you know, from a less emotional, how can I say personal level of what it mm -hmm. takes to the family business. So those soft skills and those hard skills have to come together. And that's where the family enterprise center came into the, IE, the Institute for Entrepreneurial Excellence. And then other centers were created along the way. I just kept pulling them in. Um, you know, by the by the end of the 90s, our even our economy was going well in um, in Pittsburgh, and the next generation really needed to get more business skills. But they could. There was everything was hot, so they couldn't go away for two years and get an MBA, or they couldn't go to school at night and get an MBA because they were busy. So we created a program called the Entrepreneurial Fellow Center, which I think of as an applied MBA. It's a 10 month program, went, meets once a month, you know, very sympathetic to, you know, the, um, the heirs and all the things that they have to do. So we set a tone that you have to have at least a million in revenue to get in because we didn't want the startup because we have other things that can help the, the troubled or young startup. So a million and, and it's still going to, I just finished teaching the 2023 class. So we meet once a month and they, we, um, we put them together with a mentor, someone who's very experienced in the community maybe in their industry, but most likely in their type of industry. And, um, and, and it's a great program. So we, we have 35 either current CEOs or, you know, uh, successor, identified successor candidates that go through each year. And it's been going since 1999. And then the last one I'll mention, I mean, I had other offshoots, big one in agriculture, because we have gas in, in Western Pennsylvania. And a lot of the farms were really... Um, there, there was a, uh, a um, you know, a fracking method that got um, gas out of difficult places, yeah. and especially in our shale areas, in our coal mines, and so forth. So the farmers were, were, you know, got cash, and you know, for the first time, and they were looking at technologies to put in so that they didn't have to milk the cows, you know, every, you know, 
five hours or whatever it is. So yeah. we had milking parlors and we brought in uh, Penn State, which had a, a really good and still does agricultural program. You know, so it, now with RAFID tags and I mean, it just technology just changed that whole industry and the agricultural sector. They had finally the cash that they could spend you know, on doing those kinds of things and it worked really well. So those were like just opportunities came up based in innovation, um, not only my university, but Carnegie Mellon down the street uh, from us and others. It was about innovation. All these, you know, faculty members, you know, they're researchers. They, they were creating all this really cool stuff. Um, I could say coop gardens where you grow things high instead of having to have the fields so we could do it in the middle of winter and, you know, things like that. A lot of innovations that weren't getting to the marketplace. So of course I saw that, okay, I'm not, I want to, I actually want to be the entrepreneur and start businesses for all of it, but I can't. So I'm going to take that, those research innovations and match them with the business community and really had just great success that way. And that was, we called it Panther Labworks, uh, which is still today um, because our, our sports teams were Panthers. It's incredible because you have the family business that you've grown up in, and that gave you your interest in entrepreneurship. Uh, then you've been the entrepreneur. You've been the banker to work out how to raise finance. You've been the academic, and now you're bringing the academia into the trenches, basically, and putting it all back down again. It's an incredible um, life cycle of a career, Anne. Um, can you tell me then, I know that you work in Ireland sometimes with Key Capital, don't you? Yes, I do. And what do you do for Key Capital? Well, I had met uh, some of the leaders of Key Capital, I'll say about six years ago. And we had, you know, ended up, I was actually working there doing some other programs through university, through my university, as well as, um, you know, offering other kinds of programs. And so we, we got to know each other and we were, we were talking about um, things that we wanted to do, they wanted to do, and I was offering ideas. And they said, well, how about if we create this program and it sounds like, you know, that one of the things you you have taught and you experienced is these things are not overnight successes. They take time. So together with Key Capital, we named our series uh, A Decade of Decisions so that families and closely held businesses would understand start now because it's not like two weeks or it's not, you know, the financial tools, which Key Capital has or the legal tools, which everybody has. Um, access to at Key Capital and other places, but it's all those tools. So it's the intellectual capital of the family. It's the social capital. Do we like each other? Do we get along? Do we know each other? How do we build a business together? And so we really um, build upon a broader definition of the family or closely held business within our Decade of Decisions program. And we've offered that uh, two to three times a year. Again, COVID impact, uh, uh, obviously, but, uh, and I, I always bring a, um, an American family business that would resonate, you know, with the Irish family businesses with me to tell their story. So we've had just wonderful, um, you know, we have discussions ahead of time to find that right person that would resonate with what's happening in not only the world of key capitals, clients and customers, but the economy itself. So it's been good, good experience. It's fascinating. And so you work one-on-one -on -one with the family businesses as well? Yes, I do. So typically around, you know, either the time that I'm there and, and right now it's three to four times a year or um, so, you know, time before, time after. But now, you know, as we, we move into even a deeper relationship, um, Key Capital has a number of individuals. I've had a few that have come to Pittsburgh to see me because they wanted to be one-on-one. -on -one. Um, COVID taught all of us that we can do a lot more with Zoom and, you know, team meetings that feel, you know, good. So, so you know, absolutely available to for one-on-one -on -one consulting before, after, in person, but also by Zoom teams is identified. Brilliant. Well, can you tell me, in the, in the work that you've done with the Irish businesses and Irish family businesses, it, are there certain traits that you see as being common in Irish businesses, both positive and maybe some more challenging ones? And are they the same all over the world or are there any that are particular to Ireland? Well, let me start with saying that some are common all over the world, but some economies um, are more like my family business in Southern Georgia. They're very patriarchal and male led. Um, and so I would say that I've found that in Ireland as well, especially if you look at you know, my work is with multi-generational family businesses. 
that are needing to be in that transition planning stage. So they might have been created in the 30s or 40s or 50s, but they tended to be very male-led. So now they need to start to think about what, what do we do next? And so part of it, I would say, is they, the, the, the strength there is that the love of their family business, the love of their employees. Many of them are in small areas, you know, throughout the country. Uh, and so they're a big employer. I mean, the employees depend upon them to make the right decisions. You know, there's always venture capital that will buy, you know, they're all over the place in the U.S. from Russia and China and other countries, no problem. But they, so the money's there, the money is there, but they would like to, you know, really make sure that their business, their family, their employees, their communities are, you know, good and solid. So that forward planning. So that's that long-term view they have, and I, that would be their success. I would say the the detriment, I'll say the negativity that I've seen is communication. You know, I mean, even though we know the Irish language has more, you know, words and, and articulation than any other, in my opinion, country, there's not been a practice that's deep of how to communicate about these issues. This, we can talk about the balance sheet or the financial statement, no problem. But now let's talk about your goals and your dreams as a member of my family, you know, as a, as a senior leader in our company, what would you like to do? That, that communication, you know, we're working hard to get the communication, you know, up a bit and more dynamic, you know, of having more family meetings. Family meetings are really important. So we work hard at, you know, facilitating those family meetings to occur, helping put an agenda together, and then working with a multi-generational group of family members to put the family meeting together. So it has learning content about the business. It has learning content about each other and has fun. You know, has some, yeah, well, maybe a few. The Holy Trinity. Yeah, yeah. So those are, those are all good things. But, and maybe some of the more challenging things. Are there any challenging things that maybe the communication is something that we all need oh, yeah, to work absolutely. on? Absolutely. As I mentioned, I mean, the, the communication is low. And so learning a different way of communicating and learning how to, you know, set that agenda. What I, what do I need? Like, what is the learning roadmap that's in my head? And I've had major, I had major, this happened recently, major real estate family own land and, you know, buildings everywhere. And I said, where, like, it's, where is all this written down? I mean, your, your next generation, three of them are sort of scratching their head going like, how do we learn all this? You're busy. And I said, where's all this that you're, you know, to teach? And they all, they kept pointing to their head, their temple. I said, that's not the answer. It can't be all on your head. A brilliant man found that, you know, a lot, but it has to now be somewhere that he can start to teach and translate other things in case he's hit by the bus or, you know, that, that, you know, it doesn't just like, you know, okay, the financial and legal tools are there, but what are the plans and how does he get people ready? So I think those are things that communication is definitely a big factor um, that I would mention along the way. And I think the other thing is the uncomfortableness of what am I going to do next? You know, when you start talking to a senior member of the family or the family business, they're like, this has been my whole life. I don't have anything else to do. And so part of it is helping them craft what are they going to, not are they, what are they leaving behind? Because it doesn't mean that they can go, that they have to be 100% out, don't do anything here, don't call us, don't ever show up here. There's, there's, a, there's a process over time where they're doing less and less till they get to maybe 20%, maybe they're on the board, you, you know, the, the family's been able to put an advisory board together of, or the kitchen table, you know, board together to, to continue to provide insights and, and plan for, you know, what the, the knowledge mm. that's in their brain to come out. So I think that people get stuck on, like, if I'm not here, what am I going to do? So I'd say to them, and I have, you know, let's craft earlier. What are the things that you never got to do because you were so busy here in the business? And the things that, you know, you'd like to start to plan for, and that should start early. So let's just say you're 65 uh, or you're thinking 65 to 70 is the most, is the age where most people want to slow down a little bit. Maybe now it's 70 to 75 because we're living longer and have good health. But really by, I, I really encourage people by 58, you know, 60 to start to really craft what's next. You know, think about it. So it's not like everything is a sharp knife plan for it. Think about it. Explore it's, things. 
I was just going to say, it's like your leaking roof. You you don't want to get to the stage where the roof is leaking. It's much better to do these things when the roof is in top top notch order. Exactly, exactly. And people will say to me, I don't want to travel. I, I like it here. Fine. There's lots of things with the internet and, and all kinds of skill training online. You might become like my husband, uh, an oil painter, an artist, where in growing his business, he's a CPA, um, he never in, in raising a lot of kids um, because when we married, he had five little ones. I had two. So we had seven. And now uh, we've been married 33 years now, raising seven. And now we have 12 grandchildren. But in the midst of all that, both of us were about, you know, feeding them and taking care of them and, you know, growing our family and coalescing our family. So at this time now, of course, He's retired. And one of the things he took up was oil painting and loves it, does it all the time. Oh, my goodness. Uh, On the subject of letting go and passing over control, do you think, and I mean, this is probably a very generic question, but in your experience, how much of it is about letting go and how much of it is about control? And are there other factors at play there? So the great question, and you're absolutely right. So we always think about the three circles of, of, of families and business. So you have a circle interconnected. You have one circle that's family. That's all the family members and understanding who they are. Is it born into it? Is it married into it? Is adopted into it? You know, those are all big questions that a family, you know, who have consistent family meetings start to answer before they need to. The second part of it is ownership. How is ownership going to be passed to members of our family? if we decide that we want to remain a family-owned business or 100% family-owned, partially family-owned, um, those are all big questions that have to happen or no family-owned. Um, so those are things that you have to think about in terms of the ownership. And then, of course, the that last interconnected circle is the business itself. Or in some cases, it's the wealth that the family owns, the investments that they own together, that maybe they sold the legacy family business, but now all the money's the funds are together in various investment funds that key capital you manage or or even real estate, you know, that oftentimes when the family sells the legacy company, they put it in real estate. So think about it that way. They still own together. So in the middle of those three concentric circles is power and control. And at the end of the day, you know, it's very difficult unless there's a process to educate and think about it. If you lose a share, a little of the power and control, Will you be less of a person? No, it will be that you have a longer term view because now you're in, you're providing and sharing, you know, the family ownership, the family wealth from the liquidity event, whatever it is, but you have a way to do that and everybody wins. Because unfortunately, as I, I mean, I'm pretty, <clears throat> how can I say abrupt? You know, when I talk with people and I say, you know what, at the end of the day, you might think you're gonna live forever and most of them do, um, especially the CEOs, but you're, but you know God has other plans for you. We just don't know when they kick in. So your goal is to really prepare for that, so you can look down from the heavens and say, "Boy, I did a good job. My family's healthy. My business is healthy. Our assets are invested wisely. And five or six generations from now, they're going to be doing just fine because I did the heavy lifting now, and it's not all about me. Because power and control is about a person, and having." the ability to articulate and have them understand the sharing and the timely sharing is really important. So have you advice for somebody who isn't in the CEO position? They may be in the next generation or the third generation down, and they would like to amplify their voice and their position in the business a little bit more. Have you any tips for that side, the person on that side of the equation? Learn, learn, learn. Because oftentimes there's a word that's a very bad word. It's called entitlement. And individuals feel that they're coming into as a junior. Now I'll say, you know, junior, whether it's a cousin or sibling or, you know, three generations down, they may have been raised with a level of of protection, like we'll take care of everything or entitlement. Like you don't have to worry about anything because we'll take care of it. So they become with this entitlement versus what I think of as self-actualization. And I'll go back to my own family, my grandmother from I think when I learned how to hear, she said, everybody does something. 
whether it's volunteering for something, you know, where it's not, doesn't need to be tied to your, to a paycheck, or you finding a career or you're trying careers that you like, everybody does something. That was her mantra. And I use that today all the time. And that is avoid entitlement. What is it that you, you know, as you're growing and you're looking at your next generation or your siblings or your cousin, what is it that they really like to do or they have a field to do? Let's build upon that. Let's help them get more education and learn, learn, learn so that they're prepared for whatever they start to think about. I'll say it's 16, 17, 18, there's learning. And then 18 to 21, another whole phase of learning. 21 to 25, another phase. So it's not coming in with an ego. It's not, this is going to, you know, oftentimes the senior generation will say to them when they're young, someday this will all be yours, my son, my daughter. Bad statement. It's not going to be yours. It's how do you really prepare for that? Because it may be that they're not going to be a good owner or steward for that generation. Or, and then you have to look at other, you know, dynamics. Is it time to sell or sell part of it? Or even some wait for the next generation. Because I've had families that say no one in our junior generation is ready. So we're going to hire an outside external non-family CEO so that they can, you know, work with our, our you know, our leaders and maybe our next generation and maybe somebody will be ready, but nobody's ready right now. So those are things that are hard decisions, but important decisions. As you think about it, it's not about power and control of family. It's about a long-term view of this generation, but also generations into the future, what's best. Because, you know, many families will say, you know what, in this business we're in, there's a lot of risk. There's a lot of unknowns, especially in the world as it is today. So we're much better off to be at the top of the curve and you know, provide liquidity to our family by a full or partial sale of the business. And then we can invest it and the markets will you know, grow it to a level that provides for our family you know, for generations to come. Um, that's a very, very interesting point and I, about bringing in an external um, person, be it a CEO or whatever else, because I suppose it does keep the talent um, fresh and innovative um, does that external person end up being the marriage guidance counselor and the family counselor as well, or what do you normally see happening? So, uh, so I, I incur if, if I'm working with a family or, you know, I'm providing some material for the family to decide along the way that should never be their role. That's a, that's not a role they're trained for. It's not a role that even the senior generations, uh, you know, trained for in mm. most cases when you try to broker that kind of new relationship between your children or your, you know, um, or your nephew, nieces or nephews, cousins, whatever it is. So I see that's a perfect example of moving it to a professional to do that because set the tone in the beginning. Here's your job description coming in as the external CEO. As you'll see on that, there is nothing about family relationships, but there is a way that we've set it up through our board of directors or our advisory board or our family council where we have regular family meetings where you're gonna be able to interact with the family, understand the family members in a different kind of way, but also not get involved in the skirmishes, the conflicts. That belongs either at the board of directors or advisory board of directors level, or more importantly, the larger business, it belongs to the family council. Um, and I love the way you speak and I love the information you're giving because from, from what I'm listening to, um, a lot of it is just very basic common sense, which is document, have official meetings, behave like adults, behave as though you're not family. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's space for everybody in the business that way. Everybody has a talent to bring to the fore. Um, but aside from all of this, and I suppose the profitability and the money-making part of the business. Um, where would philanthropy fit in? Because I know that's something you're quite interested in. Well, I, I you know, I am interested not only because of my, I see my core family have always been philanthropic and it's not just about money, it's time, talent and treasure. So a lot of times people focus on the treasure, you know, the money. But, you know, what is it that I learned in my business that I could really add to a nonprofit who's struggling or, you know, to our community or, you know, whatever that it is that I could add to that through my business acumen, whether it's strategic planning or finance, accounting, you know, marketing, um, those kinds of things. So that's the time part to volunteer and do the things that need to be done. But I think that, and that that's the talent. So 
so there's a mixture of time, talent, treasure. I think that in the world today, many, many people are thinking, how much do I leave my family? You know, um, it, and when does it become a burden for them? Maybe some of it, and this goes to empathy, you know, earlier on, we should maybe have some of our funds that are liquid in a, in a pool, whether it's at a, you know, at a set aside fund at Key Capital or where it is, that we're gonna use for a, you know, philanthropic efforts that our whole family enjoys, that we really have an interest in. So, you know, an agricultural family, um, and this is a true story, I saw that they put money into dental and eye care during the worker season where their workers would come, you know, from other country that may not have, you know, good access to dental or vision care. And they'd set up trailers, you know, out in the fields where they'd have set sort of medical hours where they, you know, whoever could go in and get, you know, some vision or dental work. So, and the family paid for all of that. So that was their philanthropic thrust related to what their business that had provided for them some liquidity to do those kinds of things. So I think coming together as a beginning point is good. Starting within your family meeting, what are we interested in? What's our geographic footprint that we'd like to do this in? And then setting aside some funds. And it doesn't have to be a huge amount. I say the most important part is the family discussions. That we, you know, I'm really interested and usually, especially the next generation right now is the environment, um, is um, animals. Those are the big two. And then the third one is typically um, health especially if a member of your family has been impacted by a disease. But what's really interesting is not going down the path that all take. It's spending that time to do a little research and saying, here's you know, some things that I found that I, I think more families should consider. And it's discussion about it. It's really good. Some families will say, okay, 100% of it, it's gonna go in the geographic footprint where our, our wealth was created or our business was created. But especially as you get to the third and fourth and fifth generation, they, they might live in other parts of you know, the world, but they're still part of the family. So that's one circle. And maybe some of them are still owners. So that's two circles. So in that area, they might say, okay, we're gonna take 100% of this money we've put aside. You know, let's say for simplicity, 100 euro. And we're gonna take 80 euro and put them where the business it was founded and created. But 20, you know, 20 percent can be given to, you know, other areas of the world where our, you know, next our family members live. But part mm -hmm. of that is not just, you know, a dole. It's really like, here's what we need. We need you to write, you know, a summary. What's the organization? What do they do? What's been the impact? And how much money do you want to give them? And so now it's, you know, and then the family, when they have their family philanthropic meetings, they can meet and discuss it. And it really works out much better that way. And, but it also brings the family together and it creates, um, as, as I've been told many times, empathy, you know, where there, you know, you might have grown up in a, in a family that didn't have the pressures of, you know, monies or, you know, the pressures of, you know, of households and, and so forth. But teaching the empathy for fellow man is really important. And that's a good way to do that is to, to really be looking at the nonprofits or the organizations, NGOs that are really trying to help the uh, downtrodden. And I mean, just the stories that have come out of help to the Ukraine, you know, by um, tech entrepreneurs and others that, I mean, it's just amazing what's happening in the world today. So I think there's a way to not only have that empathy grow in the family, but also to understand that everyone is not born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And it gives them feeling of self-worth too. Brilliant. Yep. No, it's it's a lovely, lovely message and an important one. And um, my last question for you today, Anne, and that is your analogy about harpooning a spouting whale. Can you explain that? Because there's so much change going on in the world, you know, as 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 you alluded to in the previous question. So what is the harpooning the spouting whale about? That goes exactly to the question that we talked about earlier in communication. Why do seniors in particular, and now juniors and seniors together, they don't talk, their communication is low. You know, they just don't, you know, have that level of trust and, you know, confidentiality of where to have the conversations we should. Starting again, I think by 14, you know, at least, you know, today of starting to have much more deeper conversations than about sports teams 
and politics. You know, I try to think about how do we do that in the world as a whole. That doesn't happen in many cases. It's because uh, they've been taught that the spouting whale gets harpooned. Don't call attention to yourself. Don't call attention to our family or our family business. And that's a very negative thing because it doesn't have to be um, on the front page of the newspaper, you know, of how much money you gave away or what was the income of the business or, you know, there's a way to do it where you're able to communicate in a, starting out in a very trusted, confidential way. Um, and then you might move into spouses, God forbid, that's always a tough one. So-and-so is getting married. You know, how do we bring the spouse into that? Okay, don't bring mm. the spouse in, but I'm just going to tell you right now, they're 50% keeper of the next generation of your family, should you be lucky to have them. So as you're torpedoing the new spouse or the new fiance, you know, be careful. I'm not saying you like open your tent and show them every detail that's out there, but you welcome them at appropriate levels into the family. And what's great is some families now have have started programs of onboarding fiancés. And that's where they talk about, here's in our family meetings, here's our core family values that we've all decided upon. Here's our core family mission statement, not the business side. And then here's some basic business about uh, information about what we do. What's always been, I'll say, disheartening to me when I go into a, a wealthy family environment, no more legacy business. They might have a few little businesses here or there. And I'll, I'll go into the family in a group and I'll go, you know, um, where did the money come from? You know, and I would say 98% of the time, the answer is wrong. They're not sure because there's never been a history. They'll say, well, grandma or grandpa or great grandma, usually in this case, created something that made money. But I think what a, you know, history lost there. Of who, here's who we are. Here's what we created and we came from and the employment that we provided. So all of that goes to the spouting wheel gets harpooned. That's just a bad statement. Let's start to share at appropriate level in our higher communication and discovery time together. Brilliant. And you are claiming to be retired, I believe, but I don't see any sign of retirement going on. Well, you know, I'm. So when I, I stepped down from the University of Pittsburgh in uh, 2015, because I, my, uh, two, two of my daughters were having children. So I went from zero grandchildren to three. My youngest daughter had twins and my oldest daughter had a single. <laughs> so I thought, you know what? I was so busy, like many uh, you know, first generation entrepreneurs, you know, in business, education, doing my thing. I, I missed a lot of opportunity with my own two daughters, unless they were, you know, working with me in the pizza shop or whatever packaging business or whatever it was. So I, I and my two daughters at that time still do have very important jobs. And so after their, you know, um, time had come for maternity leave and paternity leave, they went back to work. So that's when I retired the first time from the university. And I really spent that first year and a half with my grandchildren, loved it. Um, and so I have to say that that was retirement number one, and then I needed to get back to work. And so, <laughs> and so that's when I joined the family office exchange in Chicago, out of Chicago, but worldwide and really work with families that typically don't have a legacy business anymore, but they have incredible wealth together and they could be in the fourth and fifth generation. In the family office back then, the only thing the executive director who tended not to be family would worry about was taxes, filing the right returns, making sure the investments were solid and you know within the mm. market swatch of returns. Now family offices, they, they get so many demands you know, with um, the, the family bank, um, career planning, other things that the family next generation wants to do. And you could say, well, wait a minute, that's what the family does. That's what the parents do. But parents are as busy as ever. Grandparents are as busy as ever. So sitting down and teaching someone a balance sheet or a financial statement or how to have diversity in investments, or how do you think about your career and do some personality or behavioral tests to sort of look at, are you left right or right brain? All of those are part of not only the, the family office environment um, that, you know, Key Capital is built, but, you know, that I support today because it, it can't be a tough market out there. I mean, a tough world to educate the next generation of your family. So um, that's a long way of saying, I'm never a loss for words, that, um, yes, I'm retirement, doing nothing doesn't work for me. 
I just become much more selective of what I can take on and add value to. And um, that's why my relationship with Key Capital, I arrive in, in uh, Key Capital in Dublin on the 25th of February, and I'll be there to the 4th with us. We're, we're going to a couple of cities and we have a, you know, a whole plan of activities. I'm bringing a tech entrepreneur with me who has sold his business and is now has two, I'll say teenagers, where he's working on how to make sure they're prepared. You know, one's in early college and the other is still in high school. Uh, but how, you know, he's worked hard to prepare everyone. And so it'll be a good time. I'll have individual meetings and uh, in working, you know, within the families there. So that's my retirement is doing things I love that I can um, provide, you know, like just, you know, a lot of years of experience of doing it right. Brilliant. Well, we look forward to welcoming you to Ireland, Anne, and we're very, very grateful that you've kept Ireland as part of your retirement plan. <laughs> see, you in, see you in Dublin, Anne. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. A few big thank yous, if I may. Firstly, and most wholeheartedly, thank you again, Anne, for sharing so much with us today. It's hard to believe that Anne calls herself in retirement. Um, I describe it as something quite the opposite. May I also say thank you to Tall Tales Studios and to the team at Image, uh, Lizzie Gore-Grimes, Dominique McMullen and Bill O'Sullivan, all of whom help in producing today's podcast. I'd also like to take a quick moment to thank our business club members. As the club continues to grow in reach and the membership benefits also grow, um, please check in on image.ie to be sure you're getting full advantage of everything. We offer coaching, our signature live events at the Westbury and brilliant co-working sessions with iconic offices that really aren't to be missed. That plus lots of exclusive content up on image.ie. If you've enjoyed today's podcast and would like to find more in the series, you'll find them on our hub at image.ie forward slash as well as on your usual podcast platforms. And of course, we'd be so grateful if you'd subscribe, rate and or comment on what you've enjoyed. I hope this year has started well for everyone and most importantly that the best is yet to come. Have a great month.